difficult, difficult, women. Happy birthday! Thank you. That is correct. It was my birthday this week. Oh my goodness, happy birthday. I cried yesterday morning as I was posting on social media and my roommate Jess came downstairs. She was like, have you been crying? And I was like, this is the first birthday I've missed of Katie's oh, since so I've, I've known her. <laughs> oh, it's so, it was very it sad was, not to have you. It was a, it was a weird weird birthday, you know. Yeah, what did you end up doing? Um. Well, first of all, my name is Katie. Oh, yes. <laughs> I'm Marie. Yeah. And this is the Difficult Women podcast. <laughs> Thanks for Fuck listening. Fuck that. I want to talk about your birthday. Yeah. Birthday tong. Birthday tong. <laughs> birthday tong. I don't know what I'm saying. But um, so, yeah, I like we just had a, I had a couple few friends. A lot of people couldn't make it because of the pandemic, obviously. But I just had a very few amount of people on my uh, good friend Brit's bar, roof bar, where we were mm-hmm. very socially distanced and responsible and had some adult beverages and it was really fun. It was really nice to see some people I hadn't seen in a while. Um, yeah. And oh, and my uh, my roommates, we all went and got manicures in the afternoon. Oh my, and my goodness. My nails look like pretty little beans. Oh, wow. Little, they do look like little, dark little beans. Goya, Goya black beans. <laughs> they do look like little beans. <laughs> the woman did them perfectly. I don't usually get manicures, so it was quite a treat. So what was that like? Because when I went and got a pedicure manicure, it was it was like a end of the world apocalypse experience because I was the only person in there. And basically, like she just pulled a shower curtain around my face. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, we it was it was pretty pleasant. They like they took your temperature when you walked in. We had to wear masks the whole time. They were wearing masks. And then at the table, it was like face to face. But then they had a like a plastic shield in between Mm. us. And then they also had a bowl of little plastic uh, spider rings for Halloween. <laughs> so that was really fun. I know that's certainly a COVID thing, but I was very excited <laughs> to get a little plastic ring. It was very sharp and it hurt my hand, but it was fun. Well, happy birthday to you. Thank Beans you. Beans and spider rings. Beans and spider rings and adult <laughs> beverages. <laughs> Well, we are so excited about this episode. So today we have Caitlin Bailey. She's a former sex worker. She's a stand-up comedian. She's a sex worker rights activist. And uh, she is also the host of the oldest profession podcast that, as you all know, that I am producing. And I'm super excited about this conversation because uh, especially with like sex work and that kind of stuff and sex worker rights that's something that people just really don't we don't talk about it people sort of automatically think that sex sex workers don't deserve rights the the, when we talk about sex work a lot of people talk about making it illegal and cracking down on it and that is not the right way to deal with this and so um caitlin is uh, knows a lot she studied a lot about these things her podcast is about uh the history of sex workers so i'm just really excited about um bringing this information to all of you guys so we can like really open our minds and and realize that this is the next level leveling up in our feminism right <laughs> and mm-hmm. our activism work and making sure that every person is protected and every mm-hmm. single human uh has the rights that they deserve and also if you're gonna watch porn or partake in any kind of sex work you need to be on board with this period because you know you're participating in the system and it can't be like okay for you but not the person that's actually doing the work you know you got to protect everybody so anyway on that note 
ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together for comedian, writer, sex workers, rights advocate, Caitlin Bailey. Thank you so much for having me. We're so excited to have you. Thank you for joining. Oh my God, you are incredible. Uh, (laughs) I have the biggest girl crush on you. Okay, so let's get into (laughs) it. So Caitlin Bailey and I know each other because I am producing her podcast called The Oldest Profession. And as you could guess, it is about sex work. It's a history podcast, which totally geeks me out. It's so cool. But we're so honored to have you to hear here to talk about, you know, how we reconnected, but then yeah. especially sex workers rights and and the advocacy that you've been doing. Thank you so much for having me and thank you so much for producing the show. Like I it's such a it's such a great recording experience, right? Like I feel like I love I love talking with you about these issues for hours on end. I love the way that like you make me sound smarter and saner than I think you know, I, I am. And I, and I, and you're the fact that you're a musician and like that you bring a musician's ears to this, I think have made a world of difference. So like I, so I want to thank you for your craftsman ah. and artistry and the the work that you bring to the oldest profession podcast. And like, it's fucking awesome. So thank you. Well, you're, it's an honor working with you, <laughs> but I feel like, you know, but we, we met when I was a baby comic in 2012 in Charleston, South Carolina, that's right nuts. at the, that's right. Yeah. You were on tour with mm-hmm. your, what was it? The pink? Yeah, it was back then we were the pink collar comedy tour, but we had to change our name uh, for tax reasons to the cake comedy tour a few years later, which everyone agreed was way better. Everyone told me that they loved me and hated the name. And when we had an opportunity to change it, they all confessed to me and I felt very betrayed. Oh, uh, and that was some band drama. That's like the thing the where like when tour. you have something in your tooth and like no one will tell you and you're like, why didn't you just yeah. tell me? Just tell me you <laughs> yeah. didn't like it. Tell me there's something wrong. And they were like, well, we it. know how fragile <laughs> your ego is. Oh. Uh, we see you. So yeah, oh. they were like, we love you, but you know, you're pretty intense. <laughs> Well, let's start from the very beginning. Where sure. were you born and then how did you get into comedy? How did you Oh god. How did you get into advocacy? Um I know that you came out as a sex worker in 2013. Mm-hmm. So we we just have a lot. This may be yeah. a, have to be a two-part series because we have so many questions for sure. you. Sure. You're the most one of the most fascinating people I think that I've ever met. <laughs> that we've ever met. Truly. Oh, thank thank you. It's true. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I'll, I'll let me try the my life story right quick. Uh, so I was born into I'm an only child. I was born into a military family. So I was born in Tacoma, Washington. But like we moved before my first birthday to Texas. And then before I turned two, we moved to Germany and we were there for six years. And so, you know, I describe like growing up an only child as like growing up in an echo chamber of crazy. I feel like that's doubly and triply true when you're like on a military base in a foreign country which is like growing up in Alabama but just with like the back the backdrop is ger- like Germany but the culture is military American Whoa. so like right yeah but um you know my mom's a social butterfly my father's a soldier um he went to Desert Shield Desert Storm when I was in kindergarten um in the in the 1990s and then you know he retired when I was like nine years old because he was older when he had me so like he had me like later in his political career which I think 
made a bit of a difference as well. Like it certainly explains how entitled I am, right? Because like I was like an officer's daughter, and uh, <laughs> right, uh, yeah. And so we retired. We moved from Fayetteville to Raleigh. Uh, I went to Hunter Elementary, and then Martin Middle, and then Enloe High School. Shout out Eagles. Uh, <laughs> and you know, I was I was a debater and always a creepy kid. And like a theater kid, like right from the beginning, like performance. I did a lot of dance. I was like studying uh, to be a performer slash courtesan from like as early as I can remember. And I always had this fantasy that I would like do sex work and be a sex worker. And people are like, oh, it's so hard to make it as an actress because like, you know, you you have to wait tables. And I was like, well, if you're willing to suck dick, I feel like you can just do that like once a week. and You'll be like set right so yeah you know so there was I was there was always that calculation Mm -hmm. um I started doing escorting work when I was in high school um out of this curiosity and desire and also like contrarian rebellious streak right it's like I'm just one of those people like the more you tell me I can't do something the more I I've got a real fuck you watch this attitude and it is like both a blessing and a curse but it's like the messaging that prostitution was uh, a slippery slope to dying of heroin overdose or whatever was like I was like eh, I see how that is sometimes true but is that always true I feel like that is not always true and so I went in with this kind of soldier's mentality of like I will use my body to find out you know what what this is all about had a very privileged and also very positive experience uh went to college majored in history theater and political science uh college of Charleston shout out College Charleston right yep where I you know tried to major in theater or whatever but I it's you know but I was in the theater department which is how I knew about Piccolo Spoleto and I had Mm -hmm. like plays in the festival and then just a few years after graduating you know when I graduated college uh I'm sorry I'm doing all of this like right just real quick um I got into politics I worked for a progressive political consulting firm all over the country running field campaigns for like Planned Parenthood and the ACLU and Equality Now and Vote Vets and like this like we were a consulting firm with multiple progressive uh clients essentially and we would like run their field campaign like door knocking or letter writing or get out the vote or whatever and I did that all over the country um uh and then I burned out on that Mm -hmm. like just hard like hit a wall like just and fell to pieces um and that's when I got into comedy and I think that's a great place I think you should start comedy from your personal bottom I think that's important (laughs) right like Mm -hmm. I think crawling to the stage from a place of shame uh is is good for the craft and I did that for um a decade I thought I was studying for the LSAT but I never took the test and instead (laughs) I moved to New York City um and started the pink collar comedy tour and took myself back to my alma mater and Charleston Mm -hmm. in 2012 uh and that's when I met you that's right wow (laughs) yeah so <laughs> and you've been creating what you've have how many you have two one woman shows so yeah my moment? my first one woman show uh contagious uh mm-hmm. because i'm very cheeky um was we all i developed all about the cunt puns <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. So, our show was uh grand old country when we see, went to yeah Edinburgh. like and that's and so like i've been a huge fan of yours the whole time like I fell in love with you in Charleston in 2012 when I saw like the reformed horrors play and was like I aspire to this level of artistry (laughs) um and yeah but it was uh I developed that at the tank theater in New York and then uh performed it at New York Fringe and the 
uh, United Solo Festivals in New mm-hmm. York. Um, feel really good about both of those productions, uh, but it didn't go anywhere after that. You know, I feel like I feel like a lot of performers at our level sort of experience that we put like our heart and soul and artistry into like an album or a show or like a thing, and then it goes out there and. It, you know, you're waiting for like a thing to happen, but it's like the world just keeps spinning and you're like, okay, I guess I'll create the next thing. But like, I really, I still love Contagious. I still think it's like a great work. I wish I could share it with more people. Uh, but right now I'm developing my second one woman show, Whore's Eye View, mm-hmm. uh, which is 10,000 years of history from a sex worker's perspective, from my perspective. Uh, so it's like part one woman show, part like PowerPoint pic- uh, history lecture and part comedy special right because like I'm a stand-up comic and it's more uh there's more of that in this than there was in Contagious for sure um and I was just about to start live readings of that um at Mm. Zinc Bar in the West Village in March March uh March was our first first reading series but I'd been doing little private readings of it I developed it in Nashville actually at the Barbershop Theater which is like a cool scene um, they have this Escape from New York festival where they basically like ask New York artists artists to come and like live in Nashville for a uh, a week and use their theater to rehearse and perform and it's just like a basic black box that you can like do cool shit to and they're Whoa. lovely and will help you take your piece from like bothering you inside your head to you know reading in a black box and so that that I had I had done that in January of this year for Horse Eye View and like. Yeah, it and love them and can't say enough good things about the barbershop theater. Like and what they do, what I hope, I hope that they survive this pandemic. I hope that venue survives. Like so much is in the air right now. I don't think they're having shows right now. Maybe they are, but like mm-hmm. them as a couple, they do something that I think is so important for artists and people with stories to tell everywhere, which is they create this like no barrier safe space for creation where it's like it doesn't cost you anything to get in. You don't have to, like, they're, the expectations are low. It's meant to be a development womb of, like, mm. this can, you mm-hmm. come here and do this bad mm. um, in order to get to great, which is so important. Right. Yeah, any like, theater yeah. that will help you develop. We did um, a show a couple of years ago at Ars Nova uh, mm-hmm. for Ant Fest that was really great. And then they, you know, if you stick with them and they will help you develop further which is yeah. always always great. So awesome. Yeah, and I feel like that's been so such a I don't want to say loss, but like sort of reimagining and like re you know, this pandemic has really like shaken a lot of ecosystems up, right. you know. And I mean, I look like at us, that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, look at us right doing now. this on Zoom. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Man, I, I need to have like a escape from New York tattooed on my back at this point. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's how you I should, feel. Yeah, I mean like I reach out yeah, they're they're a cool space in mm-hmm. Nashville. They're yeah, the and they it's it's another College of Charleston connection actually. Some folks that I did the theater thing with in Charleston like know oh. the owners of this theater and so they they hooked me up and mm-hmm. it's yeah, wow. friend to friend networks, man. That's great. Well, so <laughs> let's get into the old pro podcast. Um because I think what you're doing, you've really created a group of women who are fighting the fight. <laughs> uh, I've never worked with a historian before. We have a historian right? that we work with, uh, Charlene Isn't Fletcher, she... who is incredible. Yeah. She's the best, right? Yeah, she's yeah. amazing. 
uh, we did a Zoom call with her the other day and I asked like, like right now, is there anything in history that has, are we repeating history or like what's happening? And I like that she was like, no, this is, <laughs> this is unprecedented. When we're yeah, this is, uh, there's a lot going clashing at once that's never happened before. And then yeah. add in Twitter. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I think Twitter is the big, I'm, I'm of the opinion and like I, maybe, maybe Dr. Fletcher and I are different on this. I'm of the opinion that like technology changes, but that people really don't, that mm. we're like sort of stuck in these like cycles that that rinse and repeat but like yeah twitter is fucking different and like information traveling at the speed of twitter is like i don't know uh we're not we don't seem to be okay it's like i don't know that we can handle this you know it's (laughs) yeah but get get online and listen to old probe podcast (laughs) yeah get off of twitter and follow us on twitter for sure (laughs) follow us on twitter yeah (laughs) But so we're in the third season of Old Pro, but how did you begin with Old Pro and then and what's the... Uh, man, I feel like like most of my uh, like most of my work, this was a, a product born out of spite uh, and resentment. <laughs> I, uh, I, I had been, you know, ping-ponging. I, I'd done Contagious, right, which I was very proud of, ping-ponging around the New York comedy um, scene as like an out sex worker telling telling my story, connecting to, to sex worker rights folks and like building a little niche, like going on podcasts and like speaking as an out sex worker and like sort mm-hmm. of doing doing that stuff. And uh, somebody approached me with this idea of like horror history, uh, you know, me doing a TV show where I like like drunk history, but all about the old pros and I was like brilliant that's awesome let's yeah let's make that television show and so we did a bunch of things and uh and my squirrely seedy manager at the time connected (laughs) me to like some other dude in his 50s uh and Mm. together they turned that idea into ho comedy which would be me uh as sexy as I could make myself look like doing comedy and also spoiler this is the twist being a prostitute and I was like I feel like you guys have fundamentally misunderstood that this is what you're saying right now is very familiar <laughs> like right. we so, it's, right. yeah that is a very <laughs> frustrating and familiar oh, oh yeah as reformed horrors, you guys yeah, believe that, it or not yeah. we've been through a similar <laughs> can't imagine yeah <laughs> that you would have also been in those same meetings with me. Oh God! Uh, when some dumb fucking dude, yeah, yeah, ruined your good idea. Yes. So that is exactly what happened to us. <laughs> right, yeah. So I, so I, so I got, so I left that meeting. I was very angry. Uh, I'd flown all the way to LA. I was poor. Right. That was like mm-hmm. a lot to do or whatever. And he was like dangling. He was like, sign here, and I, I have these meetings set up. If you're cool with this idea, and I was like, no, no, no I don't think you understand. I would rather not go. So I said no, um, and I got very drunk uh, and did cocaine for the third time in my life uh, and slept through the only other professional opportunity that I had, uh, which was a podcast that I had booked the next day at the cozy hour of 11 a.m., west coast time which is like 3 p.m so so you know i was like ah this will be fine i woke up at 4 p.m west coast time right yeah yeah, yeah. i don't it's me and i cannot do cocaine if you ever if either of you ever see me doing cocaine please stop me blow it off the table just don't it's not for me i don't i never have a good time it's never been a positive experience nothing good ever happens uh so anyway so 
so yeah, that was Jake, uh, Jake Johnson, um, who's a great comic. So anyway, we, I rescheduled the podcast and told this story essentially like on that <laughs> podcast and then went home, called Wendy Starling, who was another old pro stand up comedy, mm-hmm. fr- uh, friend of mine who I love and respect. Um, it called her up, pitched her the idea. She said, yes, I bullied my boyfriend, spoiler, now husband into <laughs> buying me podcast equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, is an old pro move. He did. It's excellent. It's still the best shit because he's a gearhead. Highly recommend. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> if you're shopping for boyfriends, get yourself a gearhead, upgrade your life. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, he, so we started recording and that, that was season one where Wendy and I were really both stand up comics first, like trying to make it like as stand ups, which involves like, as you guys know, a lot of things, pitching shows, you know, podcast, stand up, traveling. And then, and then Sesta Fosta happened uh, in uh, April 11th, 2018. Donald Trump signed mm. his only bipartisan bill, right? Both liberal Democrats and conservative Republicans are like censoring the internet of titties is the best idea. Mm. It's the best way that we can help child rape victims is to take. It doesn't matter. So Sesta Fosta tried to erase um, uh, adult consensual prostitution from the internet right so this is when Backpage went down this is when craigslist erotic services went down this is when rent boy went down this is where like a lot of spaces that sex workers had been using to connect and screen clients on the internet like disappeared overnight and i i saw up close the way that it was disrupting my community right because like i i'm friends with sex workers so like people's Mm -hmm. livelihoods are disappearing overnight it's like this terror and coming from stand-up comedy and this like free speech first place I was like why are my comedian friends not up in arms about SESTA-FOSTA and what it's doing to freedom of expression on the internet and I feel mm-hmm. like I recognize that as like a- as a free speech advocate and also as a sex worker um, and it completely disillusioned me to the false narrative in comedy that like being able to say the N word is like the highest expression um, of, of freedom uh, of freedom and, and came back to my roots, right? Like as a Planned Parenthood volunteer and like a young activist of like, no access to safe and legal abortion uh, and not policing grownups for doing adult things with each other and not, like censoring sexual content. Well, one of the reasons I think we really wanted to have you on the podcast today is to talk about, because I was thinking about it before we jumped on, and I was like, you know, this is one of those prostitution is and sex work, consensual sex work, is one of those things that people really don't want to talk about <laughs> they mm-hmm. really and like you said there's a bi- right. it's bipartisan that people mm-hmm. say right. oh it's bad it's bad it's bad mm-hmm. and yet people Cross the board and then and yet people are if it if it wasn't something people were engaging in there would be no business there right so people mm-hmm. are are engaging in it but then they don't want to they don't want to admit it they don't want to talk about it and they are i don't know it's like it is one of those last things that really people don't want to deal with and it's so fascinating to me because it is everywhere Mm. everywhere you look for the exchange of sexual services for something of value, you find it, right? This is, sex work is older than money. It predates us as a species and it's everywhere, right? It's in every class, every nationality and, and people engage in it on a level that like, 
rivals, I think, abortion in terms of like how ubiquitous and widespread. Like everybody has um, an aunt or a niece who is a stripper. Everybody is either watching porn or is intimate and close to somebody who consumes pornography. And I was going to say, like, even that, even just that, right? That like mm-hmm. it's more ubiquitous than abortion. I would yeah. argue yeah. because also it's men and women participating too. You know what I mean? Yes. So I think that like this is an important conversation to be having mm-hmm. <laughs> i'm excited yeah yeah and i feel like horror phobia is the pointy end of the spear of misogyny right i feel like and i feel like so much of our denigration of whores and so much of our denigration of like sexually powerful women like this goes back to fucking lilith right uh which we're getting in episode three of this season's podcast <laughs> uh so like so you know i this this idea what because what like what sex workers fundamentally are right is like throughout history is uh you know, I, I want to be I'm, I'm speaking very like heteronormatively here and I do want to say that like all genders participate in sex work like all genders have done sex work but in a world where women are property mm-hmm. sex workers are uniquely capable of being less dependent on one individual man for their freedom of movement and livelihood right, right, and right. they are able to travel in spaces that women who are protecting their virtue cannot so sex workers have been active participants in public life thousands of years before women had any legal rights at all and i think that that is an important piece of this history that we are really missing and i think like betrays the deep lie that divides so-called feminists from their sex working their sex working sisters right that we have like always had shared goals and that this policing prostitution inevitably shapeshifts into a policing of the freedom of movement of women Absol- right and that the is- american plan in world war one is we see that but even today right four months after the passage of sesta fosta four months a restaurant owner on the Upper East Side stopped serving single women at his bars because he didn't want whores in his restaurant or to open himself up <gasps> right. to liability of trafficking. Right. Absolutely. And like, Jesus. absolutely. Right? right. Right. And so it's like, you don't even have to be that pro ho to recognize that this is your fight. Right. Mm-hmm. No, I think this is what like gets me. It's 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 very reminiscent too of like this labeling of like we we had an episode about witches right that it's like yes. any woman that is like independent and trying to not need a man basically mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. is yep. then a is 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 something to demonized. be afraid and it's something to be Literally afraid demonized. of they think you know mm-hmm. what I mean that it, not only are they demonized but they are um people are terrified of yep. independent women they're ter I there was just something recently somebody posted um. Oh, it was our friend Mara, who we've had on the podcast. She posted something about being like, you know, I've had all these wonderful sex partners and I love being, I love sex. I love sex. Something like that, which was great. And we're like, yeah, great for you. And then some dude who's now, Mm -hmm. and I looked at his, his Instagram page, he was all like, you know, well, no man will want you. And then yep. she's, and then everyone started defending. It's like, no, men want that. And I was like, actually, who gives a fuck what men want? Mm, <laughs> I don't right. give a fuck. Right. Like, I don't need a man. Yeah, like, yeah, I reject you. the premise. Yeah, I reject which, the yeah, premise. Yeah, I think is, <laughs> which I think is a great, is a great, like, 
revelation, right? Right. And because that's right. that's right. the big lie, right? And this is something that I think like both my you know my mother's my mother's a feminist, but she's like an eighties feminist. Right. She's like a right to buy feminist, and my dad is not a feminist, but he's like a huge fan of me, right? Aww. So like growing up, he was always like you can do anything you want, but because you're a girl, you don't really have to do anything. It's sort of like his Mm. weird, benevolent misogyny Mm -hmm. place. Mm -hmm. And he, but he hook, line and sinker bought this idea that little boys go out into the world and experience bad things and become better men. And women go out in the world and experience bad things and become traumatized, broken, devalued, Mm -hmm. denigrated people. Mm -hmm. And that I think is the big lie behind patriarchy and specifically whorephobia and this idea that we are somehow devalued by either the sex that we choose to do or the sex that is done to us. And I think this lie reveals itself weirdly enough in the feminist movement in like the sort of carceral arm of the the Me Too movement, Hmm. right? Where it's like, you know, rape is the worst thing that will ever happen to you. It's like, if, if this ever happens, you know, you're traumatized forever and you're blah, 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 blah. And it's like, we need to allow space for individual experience and yes. nuance and complexity yes. and multidimensionality mm-hmm. in our stories of sexual violation. And mm-hmm. I feel like the, the black and white thinking of the Me Too movement reminds me of the black and white thinking of the like virgin whore dichotomy and, and, buys into this basic idea that like women are uniquely vulnerable to being degraded in some way by the dicks that they're exposed to. And the thing is, it's like we are uniquely vulnerable to being degraded, but not because there's something inherently wrong with being a woman. It's because you're doing it. You're choosing to degrade us, you know, in that sense. No, and the problem is not the sex, it's the stigma. Exactly. And I think also in some ways I wonder too about like people that go have rape experiences like, sometimes the trauma can be worse because of the stigma, not because of even yes. the actual event. And so if there's not the any real, like... Um, even the consequences, right? Right, and the like, consequences, you can, right. That's almost worse than the event itself when when you don't... No one is being held accountable. Yeah, absolutely. And, like, our, our adversarial court system, like, our whole criminal justice system does, like, not allow space for, like, restorative justice right. or, or anything of that nature. But the cold heart like multiple things can be true at the same time right right Right. you could have been violently violated and also not want your friend acquaintance roommate or whatever in jail right like both of those things can be true at the same time and we don't allow space for that and that i that i think is a real problem well we don't allow space for that in any time we talk about this all the time too that Mm -hmm. like we are even even at this like infighting within like liberals and stuff, for example, it's like every, one thing so has vicious. to only be right in people's minds. It can only be one way. And that's just not how humans function. And, and the Internet does that to you. You know, it's like everything's polarized. Yeah. I mean, righteousness is a hell of a drug. Yeah. Yes. You know? oh, yes. And it's like I I really do think I see righteousness on on all sides. I don't want to like both sides this or whatever. It's like you know, Nazis are worse than feminazis across right. the board. <laughs> but I've seen, but like righteousness and black and white thinking is like an across the board. That's a, it's a people problem, not a partisan problem. Right, right, right. You know? Right. Yeah. And, and it drives me crazy. And that's, that's actually one of the reasons why I'm leaving my position now as, so like right now I'm the director of communications for decriminalized sex work, which is a national advocacy organization. And we we're an organization that's trying to do like a lot of things and be a lot of things to a lot of different people. But ultimately the kind of storytelling that you do in politics is black and white, good, bad, 
storytelling because you are fundraising, right? You're mm-hmm. trying to get people to vote. You're like you and you know, like the Declaration of Independence did not start out with like a thank you letter for all England had done for the colony. You know, it's like it's not a nuanced mm-hmm. position, right? Mm-hmm. So and the oldest profession podcast and the work that we're doing, I think, is better positioned and better equipped to engage in the deep, the deep multi-dimensional storytelling that I think these old pros deserve and that I think is at the kind of storytelling that is actually capable of affecting change and mm. helping people see that these are all kinds of people, right, doing all kinds of things um, and reintegrating sex workers into the national narrative, into the stories that that we tell and that we think that we know. And I And then so oddly enough, I feel like I can actually affect more change with this podcast mm. than I could as the comms director for a national advocacy organization. I mean, I think that that I'm sure you must come up against that a lot where when you're trying to talk a conservative, I mean, anybody, not even just a conservative mm-hmm. person, but let's let's take a very conservative politician mm-hmm. and you're trying to talk them into understanding why they should you know, why it's important to advocate for the rights of sex workers like. Yeah, there's probably a lot of like paint, painting it with a broad brush of like, well, we know they're bad, but they still need yeah, help. Yeah, yeah. And that's well, not necessarily actually, the story you want to be telling. <laughs> totally, totally. And there's like there's a ton of that in politics. Like right. I, I call like political fundraising like the real prostitution. Right. Right. Like everything that you think that you hate about prostitution, not ubiquitous in sex work ubiquitous in other types of like you know you're you're thinking of the entertainment industry that's what you're thinking so uh ah, ah, well uh we do this to ourselves um whatever uh yeah no so so i actually i went to alec this year which is one of the most conservative um conferences it's the american legislative exchange council right and we we set up a fucking booth right so it's me like and and i will tell you that it it is a little heartwarming. This is a bipartisan issue on both sides. Mm-hmm. We do have support from the law and order right on this issue. And the argument looks like this. Do you guys remember when Robert Kraft got put into handcuffs because of a hand job that he got? Do you guys remember no. that news cycle? Oh my do you guys goodness. know who Robert Kraft is? That name is it familiar, makes, but I don't it know. It makes sense. Okay, just know that every conservative politician in America knows who Robert Kraft is. Okay. He is the owner of the Patriots. Oh. He is a Trump supporter. That, sports, sports. And he is like a <laughs> 72-year-old billionaire widower, right, mm. who splits his time between Boston and South Florida, right? So he's like a man that every conservative man can see himself as, mm. right? And so he got caught up in a John Sting in South Florida where five different law enforcement agencies threw themselves press conferences talking about how they'd broken up an international <laughs> sex trafficking ring, right? And and Robert Kraft was one of the people that they had on their like behind the scenes undercover camera engaging in, you know, happy ending massages by legally licensed masseurs. And so, like, you know, the FBI and the, uh, you know, uh, Homeland Security and, like, four different local police departments were, like, all involved in this multi-month, multi-man, deep undercover sting to arrest legally licensed masseurs who were offering happy endings some of the time to some of their clients, right? So they arrested Robert Kraft, but because Robert Kraft is who he is, he fought it. 
and revealed that there was no evidence of trafficking, uh, that the youngest woman involved was like 40 years old, right? So it's like a 40-year-old woman. Like, it, it's it, just the narrative of the, the gap between what the cops said happened mm-hmm. and what was actually happening was very vast. And our position was, this isn't unusual. This is what anti-trafficking stings look like in this country. This mm-hmm. is a waste of police resources is a waste mm. of taxpayer dollars we're not catching the real criminals mm-hmm. right because we're wasting valuable time and energy going after adults for doing grown-up things with each other mm-hmm. behind closed doors mm-hmm. and that is an argument that even your conservative uncle is open to hearing mm-hmm. and that and we're going into those spaces and delivering those kind of like button-up messages um wow yeah <laughs> Well, I would like to talk about just, um, you know, how uh, what it was like in 2013 when you did come out as a sex worker. And I I know that your one woman show is about this um, contagion, but Mm -hmm. I would love to hear from your own mouth. (laughs) Yeah, that's not it's not my best moment as a person. Uh, But yeah, so I so I I I started. um, So I actually I started coming out in pieces, which I think is like a lot of people's stories, you know, so I had a, a a close network of friends that, that knew. And, um, I had told uh, what sort of sparked all of this, uh, because like I said, I am somebody who does something out of spite is I had fallen in love with, uh, this Irish alcoholic because, uh, because I like cliches and I had told him about my history as a sex worker seven years before we met. And he got, let's just call it like violent and defensive about that. And, and gave me a lot of like messages and like, you know, unlovable broken narratives that uh, I reacted to very strongly. So I left the relationship, but like I really sort of like dug into this narrative around uh, feeling unlovable. Right. And like Mm. what, what ha- what having been a whore means and what that looks like and what that, you know it really started thinking deeply about this um and then and I was a, a comic at the time right so I'm hanging out with all of these comics and I met Aaron Berg who also has a one man show about being a male sex worker in Canada and he took me to the uh North by Northwest festival uh up in Toronto um, and that's where I first started telling my story as a sex worker as part of like a stand up set. And I was bombing so hard. <laughs> it was like I it wasn't in joke form yet. It was mm-hmm. just me telling like really uncomfortable stories with like way too much information and just being like, I'm a sex worker. LOL. Well, it's like people are like literally smoking. I don't. It, yeah, it's not <laughs> whatever. Just bombing my ass off. Uh, but I. I said the words out loud on stage in front of strangers and nobody mm. died. Right? right. Right. And so then I, I came back and I wrote contagious, uh, um, which was, which was great and hard. And then, um, I performed it, mm. um, with, and the, and the show, by the way, just for your audience, the show contagious is about coming out to my father as a sex worker, but I did not, come out to my father as a sex worker. I just wrote a play about it. Mm. Wow. So like, so he, 
we never had that conversation, but I'm like promoting my show, right? Mm-hmm. Like in, mm-hmm. and so, and my parents also have the internet, it turns out. And so uh, I went home and my, my mom took me to a therapy appointment because we are uh, parodies of ourselves. And <laughs> she said in front of the therapist, I can't believe you sold your body. And I said, uh, I didn't, I still have it. Um, and the therapist laughed and then that was all that we said about it. <laughs> wow. And then my mom dropped me off to like have the talk with my dad. Um, and instead of doing that, we both just got really drunk and like talked in platitudes at each other about like courage and making mistakes and what mm-hmm. life is. Mm-hmm. And then I went back to New York and wrote a vice article about coming out to my father that was based on that conversation and then my dad finally called me and was like, I didn't realize that you were a literal prostitute. I just thought you were talking about your abortion. I was like, no, no, no. I don't regret my abortion at all. Like that was right. So like, so then we had a whole other conversation that was, that was great. So I came out in, I came out to an audience before I came out to my parents. Mm-hmm. And now uh, I'm out and I talk about the work that I do, which is all sex work stuff. But they're still really uncomfortable with it. It's still kind of a don't ask, don't tell. They feel um, way better now that I'm married to like a man that they recognize as as being successful, right? He's like a mm-hmm. rich Eagle Scout. So they're like, you know. <laughs> and and that makes me sad for them because I feel like they mm. can't they can't see the cool things I'm doing past the veil of respectability through which they mm-hmm. measure the world. And also it's interesting ju- specifically that it's like they, you know, a man had to come in and then make you respectable. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Which yes. is very yes. sad. Too. We both yeah. struggle with that it. with our parents. Um, you haven't made it yet until you have that security. Uh, and that yeah, until, is the man. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I think my my parents think of my husband as as rescuing me, which I think is, um, which is, yeah, it's again, it's like sad for them, Mm, right? right. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's like my my husband does provide me like a base of power from which to do things. But like, I feel like I had that psychically Mm. before we got together, like, Mm. which is just a deep knowledge that like my worst case scenario isn't that bad. Just take the risk. What an incredible man. Yeah, no, yeah, Trey's great. Really? Trey's, yeah. Sorry, can I tell the story? There's no way to tell the story without sounding like a bitch. But <laughs> love it. Yeah. I, we love okay. it. We love bitches. We're both bitches. All right, yeah, okay, all right, great. So so our wedding announcement got written up in the New York Times, right? So we like so we submitted. And I definitely think that there is like a perception in my family that I married up, right? If that makes sense. But First of all, <laughs> I got the sentence, end the prohibition of prostitution in the United States in the style section of the New York Times, Amazing. which is a huge so fucking cool. win. Amazing. But second, the New York Times spelled my husband's company wrong and had to issue a correction. So <laughs> I just just saying I'm more famous than him. No. Like, so, like, <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so cool. <laughs> That's amazing. I love it. <laughs> yeah. So it's anyway. Uh, but yeah, so that's that exists. It's uh, yeah. Our, our wedding announcement. Wait, did you guys meet in high school? We did. So yeah, okay, we met so that on the was... debate team. What? Yeah. But so, I mean, <laughs> were you all together at all in high school? No, we were not friends. We did not get along. He was. Yeah, we were both 
too much our core selves, right? Like I thought he was condescending, which he definitely is. And he thought <laughs> that uh, I was a lot, which I definitely am. And now we live together. <laughs> how, so, and then how, when did you, how did you reconnect? Well, I was uh, in the West Village. I was um, chain smoking uh, outside of an open mic um, in the West Village, probably like a, like a mixed music open mic. And he was walking his dog because we'd made very different choices in life. And so we like <laughs> weirdly, weirdly reconnected, like very awkward. He was like, I have a 401k. And I was like, I am stealing toilet paper. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then... <laughs> I don't know why my parents think he rescued me. It doesn't matter. Everyone's fine. Like a, it bothers me because it's like a little true. Right. But we. So anyway, we so we became Facebook friends after that, and then because he didn't know a bunch of performers, like when I invited him to Contagious, mm. he brought his girlfriend and came. Wow. Uh, and and you know, and then we like sort of kept running into each other, like once every like six to eighteen months for the next few years um and then one day we were both single and he invited me to a dinner party um and I got blackout drunk um (laughs) with his like friend's dad it was like not appropriate and uh (laughs) and then we were really and then we became like some like some flip switch and we became like the bestest of friends and I was running an Airbnb uh out of the out of my West Village apartment that's how I was like making rent work right um, and so frequently there were just strangers in my apartment and, and he was living in Murray Hill and I was in the West village and it's like a 30 minute walk, but it's like a 40 minute train ride between mm-hmm. those places. <laughs> and so, and he had a very comfortable setup. And so I actually had a toothbrush at his apartment before our very first kiss because we were just hanging out so much and it was just easier for me to crash there so often. And so we were like slumber party buddies for months and then I went on the Kate comedy tour and that's when we started sexting <laughs> and then I and so I came home to a boyfriend and that's and amazing. now we're, and now we're married I also really like that he one of his first like adult interactions with you was seeing your show and mm-hmm. then yeah. knowing all that stuff up front and then that just you know then that's great then you don't have to like yep. It's not an issue. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely, yeah, it was nice uh, that I didn't have to come out to him as either a sex worker or a brat. He was like right. very well informed about either, both of those things. Like, Yeah, we struggle being on dates and telling them that we're in a band called Reform Tours and then their brains just like, they try to relate and try to, you know, get on your level, but oh gosh. I mean, the it's a little bit. Shame. Yeah. No, no, say what you're going to say. Well, I was just going to say the amount of shame that men like to put on us for what, for just living our truth is just unbelievable. Well, but it's the, so and incredible to. And the assumptions people make. Yes. And the assumptions. Yeah. Yeah, I had a date and this one guy was like, uh, you know, I looked up your band before the date and then came in with like, um, oh, your band is just like that song. It's like, you know, f- lick it, lick it good and fuck, fuck in the butt and blah. And I was like, that is not at all. Like, I don't understand right. men ju- or, or just g- generally people just when they start listening to our songs, they assume that we're like the dirtiest. I know. They it's... don't even hear what we're saying. Yeah. It's yeah. unbelievable. Yeah, and, it's, and I'm and I imagine like that's exactly what happened with the what has now become the oldest profession, right? To com- to see comedy ho in that is to not 
see mm-hmm. right and like same thing with what y'all do uh as like as a band and performers and like provocateurs is like so the opposite of porn like it's not like you're like you're not making sexual content like this is uh a, like feminist rallying cry uh and it's yeah no it makes it makes me so mad and i feel like that that is that's part of violence that's part of misogyny right that willful unknowing right that willful not hearing or like not being able to hear someone right and it's like how many how many rapes happened because people like literally couldn't hear women when they said confusing things like no and stop i am continuously frustrated and infuriated by what feels like a willful unknowing and incomprehension when it comes to the female body and the feminine experience Mm. and where are we in 2020 as far as advocacy what are what are politicians really doing right now to protect women's bodies in the sex worker field because this is (laughs) (laughs) i mean are we true i mean it feels like we're regressing it yeah. feels like, I mean, we just recorded um, an episode about Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera and their, um, the tr- you know, trans women that that fought for for rights. And, and, it, and I was having this conversation and yeah, and I was having this conversation with my mom yesterday about it because she is she feels a little bit weird when I talk about sex work and and that sort of thing but and she was saying like oh well we need to protect women's bodies and and I was like but don't even get me started about trans bodies because that is what truly I feel like is at stake even I mean every we're all it's so scary what's happening right now Mm -hmm. um but it's it truly is people like you that are changing the trajectory I so I before the global pandemic, I was feeling really optimistic. Okay. Because we'd succeeded in seeding this basic idea in a lot of important spaces, right? Mm-hmm. The LGBTQI movement understands that sex worker rights are their fight. The ACLU uh, is starting to issue statements that are like pro decrim, right? Planned Parenthood is starting to like co sponsor events. So, like, mainstream institutional left spaces has started to started to really wake up to the message in the right way. In addition to, uh, you know, trailblazers like Amnesty International, um, the World Health Organization. So like that, that was starting to happen. And we were starting to get it from the right in libertarian circles. Police officers were starting to poke their heads up and say things like, I don't know, putting, 42 year old women in handcuffs and charging them with petty crimes just doesn't feel like protected and serving my community. You know, like, you know, like maybe this isn't awesome. So there were a lot of ingredients there for, for the beginnings of a movement. Right. Mm. Uh, My organization, we got um, full-time lobbyists in New Hampshire, Rhode Island, uh, New York, Vermont, uh, we were about to branch off into Maine. We're trying to get into D.C., Colorado. There's really, really active stuff happening in Washington, California. Um, even Nevada like has some badass decrim activists sort of within the legalized model, which we can talk about um, out in the desert. So like powerful circles were starting to wake up to this message. Like, I mean, like sex workers have always gotten it. This has always sort of been on the fringes, but like academics and like people with law degrees and like people with like community leaders were really starting to wake up to this message. And 
in the beginning stages of the pandemic, I was hopeful that a national, a global crisis that was so isolating would maybe collectively wake us up to the importance of intimacy. And like maybe maybe we could drop some of our make-believe problems in the face of, of some real ones. But I'll be honest, <laughs> losing ground on the front of reproductive justice does not bode well for sex worker rights. Like I, I, I feel more and more like we are experiencing like a roaring 20s or like a, a, a like a Weimar Republic kind of renaissance before the storm kind of thing. I reject this narrative in history that we are on an inevitable progressive march forward. Uh, we Societies, cultures do go backwards very quickly, very violently. Um, this history has been erased before. It can and will be erased again. Um, so yeah, I think of the oldest profession podcast as, you know, as we, as we said in the first episode, like a, a seed in the dark, you know, of like, I'm hope we have a small audience, but I hope, I hope to provide like a life vest of stories to take us through what I'm, what I feel is going to be a very shaming, uh, very isolating future. Mm. wow well on that note (laughs) yes sorry guys no 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 this is amazing I just really you know listeners um on difficult women I really think that you would love to check out old pro podcast um could you plug all the socials for everyone yeah yeah totally absolutely we are on uh we are on twitter and instagram at old pro podcast uh but you should really check out our website the oldest profession podcast.com it's beautiful we you can meet the whole team right marie your bio's up there we've got dr charlene fletcher and our incredible uh you know social media manager and publicist um irene marrow who's also uh an old pro comedian uh so it's you know it's kind of we're it's a cool band we're building a cool band uh, here. <laughs> the um, you what you will also find on the website is a full annotated bibliography uh, and essay about each old pro. So if you're just looking for information, we can provide a resource. Um, and you can email us anytime. You know we we know or I, I know many of us at Old Pro Productions know what it is to lead a double life. And so if you feel like there's no one you can share your story with, uh, please please shoot us an email, the oldest profession podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Oh, well, Caitlin, this is really wonderful. And with your permission, would it be okay if we played out um, our episode of Danica's song that she wrote? hundred percent. It's a, can we tell the story of how that song came to be? Because I love it. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, Caitlin had this incredible idea of, of, you know, for every podcast you have, you know, some sort of theme song, uh, you know, ours at the very beginning of ours, difficult, difficult, difficult women. <laughs> um, but for for the old pro, I had the idea of um, getting one of my dear friends here in Nashville involved. But uh, but yeah, Caitlin had all these awesome ideas and I actually pulled transcripts from her just talking and sending to Danica and we we came up with this incredible song but please say in your own words what you were really trying to to get because as a producer my job was to take what you wanted and then (laughs) make it make it happen 
Well, first of all, I sent you theme music that ranged from like Barbara Streisand's <laughs> putting it together to Dolly Parton's nine to five to like the chicks March March. And I I feel like what attracted me so much about like the March March anthem is that it it is a stand up and fight anthem. But it's a stand up and fight anthem outside of, I think, the kind of like male oriented symbol of soldier. And it's more more like a siren call. Mm -hmm. And so what the what the podcast what we hope to do with the podcast is is not just share these stories, but also to inspire these stories. Right. Like old pros coming out to their own communities, uh, repeating these stories in their advocacy and in their in their social circles, keeping these stories alive by discussing them with each other. And and that's kind of the call to action. And so the the song feels so much like a I don't know, like a like a power spell almost, mm. right? Like a, mm -hmm. you know, I wish you well on the tumultuous journey of owning your own story. Mm. You know? Mm -hmm. And yeah. Yeah. Well, here at, at on Difficult Women and and us as a band and uh, and as just as human beings, like we're, you, we we're, we're taking back our power. How dare mm -hmm. you take it away? It's not yours, it's ours and we're owning ourselves and owning our truth. So, please everyone take a listen to Old Pro Podcast and then without further ado, this is our theme song. Stories we share more than blood, echoing truth for generations. 